All right, let's pray and then we'll open the word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have recorded for us in your word these great stories and teachings so that we can learn about you and learn about the life that you approve. And I pray, Lord, that today you would give us uh, uh, wisdom to understand your word and the, the strength and courage and wisdom to apply these things to our lives. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are starting a new series called Fear Not, and uh, this series is uh, going to be going through the different times when angels appeared to people around the Christmas, uh, the first Christmas story, and each time that an angel appears to somebody, they say, do not be afraid or fear not, and then, uh, and then they have a message from God that they bring to these people. And so we're going to be talking about that, uh, that uh, those four stories over the next few weeks here as we lead up into Christmas. And this week, um, the guy who the angel appears to is named Zechariah, so our title this week is Fear Not Zechariah, and we'll be hearing about what the angel had to say to Zechariah and who he was and, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. So the story is in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, so you can open up there, and uh, we're just going to jump right into uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 where it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. There are not very many people in the Bible, who get higher praise than Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, They are righteous in the sight of God. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they were uh, perfect and they never did anything wrong their whole lives? They, They never committed a sin? Well, no, the Bible is pretty clear that everyone sins and everyone uh, does things that are wrong. But God has made a way for us to deal with our sins when we do things that are wrong. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are Jewish believers from uh, the time before Jesus, and so they are following what's essentially an Old Testament pattern and an Old Testament system for dealing with their sin that God uh, gave to the people uh, when he met with Moses on Mount Sinai. And now these hundreds of years later, here are Zechariah and Elizabeth living according to that way, and, um, and doing what they're told. Uh, the second half of the verse says they are observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees. So that includes offering sacrifices. Uh, when they become aware that they have sinned and, it, and it's an appropriate time, they will bring their sacrifice to the, to the temple to uh, seek forgiveness from God. And it includes praying and asking God to forgive them. So they're, they're following the procedure that was laid out in, in the Old Testament when um, at the dedication of the temple, I'm going to read a section here from the dedication of the temple where they were explaining, or he was praying to God and asking God to answer these kinds of prayers. It says, uh, when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and act 
Deal with everyone according to all that they do, since you know their hearts. And so that was what Zechariah and Elizabeth were doing. When they uh, had afflictions of the heart, when they were feeling that guilt of sin, they would pray to God, pray toward the temple, and He heard their prayers and He forgave them. And they performed the sacrificial rituals at the temple, and they observed the Day of Atonement and the other uh, parts of the religious practice of, of uh, the time, and they lived lives that God considered righteous and blameless. Now, things are a little bit different for us today as Christians. We have the finished work of Jesus uh, as the basis for our forgiveness rather than the sacrificial system that only looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and His sacrifice. But the basic principle is still the same. If you want to live a life that God considers righteous and blameless, it is possible to do that. And that's one of the lessons that we take right away from this couple of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, We too are able to live lives that are pleasing to God. We can have lives that are characterized by victory over sin, and quickly dealing with the sins that we do commit. Of course, we're never going to really behave perfectly and and not make any mistakes and do things wrong, but God knows that, and that's why He gave us systems and and, uh, ways to deal with our sins. And so we read things like 1 John chapter 1, um, where, where in the New Testament God explains how to deal with sin. He says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So you see, when we come to God and we confess to Him in prayer the things that we have done wrong and we ask for Jesus' payment to be the cover of those sins, then they are covered. And when we are purified from all unrighteousness, then we will be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We will be righteous in the eyes of God. See, sometimes we get the idea that God is just perpetually angry with us, right? He's just up there frowning at all the bad things we're doing, and He's always... The only thing that's holding Him back from just smashing us is that He's... he's, his patience and his mercy, but he really wants to crush us. He's just kind of resisting the urge. But that's not the God that the Bible describes, right? The Bible describes a God who is pleased with people who live according to his decrees. The Bible teaches that it is possible to live a life that makes God happy. So, if you are living a life Uh, where you have habitual sin and you've given up on regularly coming to God for confession and forgiveness, that is not where your life always needs to be. You can make progress in life. You can make a change. It is possible to move on from that. It's possible to keep fighting sin, to confess your sins daily to God, and to live in a way that God sees as righteous in His sight. So don't give up. 
Okay, back to our story. Now that we've uh, kind of got an idea of who Zechariah and Elizabeth are, the, the, uh, Zechariah the priest and his wife and their righteousness, let's see. Um, yeah, we would expect, right, if these couple is doing everything right, they're following God's ways, their life must be pretty good, right? Things must be going really well for them. Um, surely there's no big heartaches in their life, Right? No, the very next verse says this. It says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, for some people, they might choose to not have children, and, and being childless is, is, a, is a choice that they made, and, and they're fine with that, and it's not a hardship for them. But for some couples who really want to have kids and are not able to, it's a real source of, of, of tough feelings in their lives. And that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth are. The story makes pretty clear that they really wanted to have children, and they were unable to. Um, and now it was too late. They're beyond the years when couples are able to have kids. And, uh, and it's a source of sorrow for them. So a lesson that we can take here uh, is that even when we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God, it does not mean that life is going to always be easy. It does not mean that we will not experience sorrow and frustration in our lives. There's many hardships that will come to us even when we are doing what is right. It's a consequence of living in a world that's just full of sin and all the wide-ranging effects of sin that there just are tough things that happen in our lives. Bad things happen, and sometimes it's our own dumb fault, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's just things happen. But at any rate, the Bible tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth have not been able to have children. And now we have a picture of this godly couple, and now the story actually begins in the next verse here. So verse 8 of Luke chapter 1. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So the way that things worked in these days is that the priests, they lived all out around all of Israel. But they, were, they had these certain divisions, and uh, they would be uh, in a rotation to come to Jerusalem and serve at the, the temple in Jerusalem. And then the rest of the year, they would be off in their own towns and villages. And, uh, and Zechariah's uh, group was, at this time, serving at the temple in Jerusalem. And then the group, once they got to Jerusalem, they would, uh, they would have this uh, random selection to see who got to do what in the, all the different duties that were done at the temple. And Zechariah had been chosen to be the one who would offer incense on the, uh, on the altar of incense in the temple. And um, this was a big deal because uh, most of the worship that happened at the temple happened in the courtyards out around the actual temple building, right? The actual temple building was restricted to only the priests could ever enter into the actual building. The, the altar of sacrifice and all those things were all outside in the courtyards. The building had only a few things in it and, uh, and was only priests could go in there and only priests, the only time that priests could go in was when they were 
performing one of these special um, services that was done in the temple, including offering this incense on the, um, the uh, altar of incense in there. So it was, it was a rare and a high privilege for any priest to be able to go inside and, and do this that Zechariah is doing here. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Well, of course, he was gripped with fear, right? He's all alone in the temple in this, you know, he's offering this incense. He might have even had his eyes closed as he's enjoying the smell of the incense going up from the altar. And then suddenly there's someone standing there. Um, and even if it was just a regular guy standing there, that would be startling, but it's not a regular guy. Um, we're, he's not described here, but he, somehow uh, Zechariah could tell this is an angel, something about his appearance. So startling appearance of this angel. And, uh, and then the angel says to him, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He says, fear not, do not be afraid. And of course, there's the obvious reason for him to say that, that we just said that, you know, he suddenly appears there and it's kind of startling and it's an angel, so that's kind of a scary thing. But, but there's, there's a lot more to that idea of do not be afraid than just, uh, you know, get over being startled and listen to what I'm saying. There's, his whole message is part of the fear not thing, right? So he tells him to fear not, and then he tells him, here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Um, It's, it's not simply that the angel um, tells him not to be afraid. Then, then after that, now, okay, now here's the message. Not being afraid is part of the message. And the angel's whole speech explains why he shouldn't be afraid. And the fears here are much bigger fears than just being startled by an angel. So the first one is that Zechariah does not need to fear ending his life without children, right? So that's the first fear that the angel dispels for him. He's, he will have a son. And he says, this son will be a joy and a delight to him. God uh, loves that kind of a reversal. Zechariah's fear and his disappointment at not having a child will be turned to joy and delight. And not just because he's going to have a kid. I mean, that, every parent is happy when they have a child, but... But here, this child is not going to be an ordinary person. The angel tells him not only that, that, that he will be happy, but that many will rejoice 
at the birth of this child. And that's because this child will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as righteous in the sight of the Lord, but their son is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, another fear that the angel's message can rid us of that is talked about here is the fear of a meaningless life. Right? Many of us are afraid that uh, when it comes to the end of our days, we'll look back on our life and we'll say, what did I do? What did I accomplish? What was the point of it all? And if you uh, experience that fear, this angel's message can help you to understand how to live a life of meaning, purpose, and even greatness. And, and, and what is it that makes someone great in the eyes of God? Well, the angel tells us at least part of what is going to make John great here, right? It says, uh, first, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, uh, that's something that all Christians, uh, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit when we become Christians and we put our faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to, to live in us at that moment when we um, uh, are saved, and it's one of the benefits of our salvation. But in addition to that, there is another kind of filling that the Spirit does um, that, that the Bible describes. And, and there are times when the Spirit fills people in a special way in order for them to do a special act of ministry. In the book of Acts, this comes up a number of times, and, and when believers are filled with the Spirit, it's almost always so that they can then preach the gospel, so that they can then tell somebody about Jesus and tell somebody uh, the story of salvation available to them through Jesus. They're filled with the Spirit, and then they just start talking about Jesus to people. And uh, when we are living lives that are pleasing to God, like we just talked about with Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and, and dealing with our sin, and, and God will occasionally choose to work through us in special ways. And we too can be filled with the Spirit so that we can be enabled to tell people about Jesus in ways that don't come naturally to us, but God will help us. But for John, this child of Zechariah and Elizabeth that's uh, being talked about here, he was filled with the Holy Spirit all the time, even before he was born. And there's, a, there's an interesting story that comes up a little later in the passage that uh, we're not going to get to talk about today. But when, when uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, meet, and they're both pregnant, John is able to recognize Jesus even before he's born. Crazy story, but you can read that in the later part of this chapter. So John is, um, is, is able to do this special work through the working of God even uh, his whole life. Now, um, I just want to be clear here, too, before we move on, who we're talking about here. Um, John the Baptist is who this person is going to be, and it, he doesn't, he's not called that in this passage, so I just wanted to make sure everybody knows when it's talking about John, we're talking about the guy who later on in the Bible is referred to as John the Baptist and is the one who comes and, uh, and prepares the way for Jesus coming. Um, so, as a man who is great in the eyes of God and filled with the Holy Spirit, what is it that the angel says that John is going to do? Well, it says, first, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. 
So do you want to be great in the eyes of God? Do you want to do something that's meaningful and, and, and important to God? Then bring people back to God. And of course, there's, there's lots of ways that uh, we can work to bring people back to God. Um, we're not all going to be preaching sermons about Jesus and going out and uh, you know, teaching and preaching and stuff. And some of us are not even going to be the one to sit down with a friend and like have your little plan of salvation and guide somebody through and, and, and do all that. Um, here's the way I see this. Um, we are not on our own as lone rangers out there trying to bring people back to God. Um, we are a team. As a church, we are a team. And, um, and the way I see this kind of a team is more like a football team. You know, in some sports, most of the players are all basically doing the same thing. But in football, it's very specialized, right? You have different positions being played by different kinds of guys, and they, um, they are very different kinds of athletes. So you've got the, the linemen who are really big, strong guys, uh, you know, 300, 350-pound guys that not necessarily very fast, but they're super strong and have their own skills and techniques. And then you've got other guys who are like the wide receivers who are small guys who are able to run much faster. And, uh, and if they switched places, they would be terrible at the other guy's job. And then you've got other guys, you know, who are specialists in throwing the ball and other guys who are specialists just in kicking the ball. And you've got all these different people on the team and they all have their role to play, and each one is essential for the success of the team. If you don't have a kicker on your team, you've got problems. If you don't have good linemen on your team, you've got problems. You need to have people to play all these different roles. And that's the way it is with bringing people back to God. Each person has his own special skills and his own role to play on the team. And it takes all of us doing our part to make it happen. But here's the thing. If you don't think you have a role, um, you need to find your role so that the team isn't weak in that area that is your particular uh, section. Maybe you're not John the Baptist, you know. You're not going to be the, the guy out there doing the confrontational preaching and calling on people to repent and all this. But, but you do have a position on your team. And for the team to win, we all need to play our position to the best of our ability. So do you want to be great in the eyes of God? then do your part to bring many people back to the Lord their God. And your part might include uh, inviting your friends to the Christmas Eve service. It might include uh, helping to set up uh, the solstice tree tour. It might include teaching Sunday school or serving in the nursery or helping out with Club 68. Or maybe it's volunteering down at the soup kitchen to serve meals. But... There's many ways that you can work to bring people back to God, but the, here's the thing. You need to find your position to play on the team and play it to the best of your ability. You might not end up being the, the greatest to ever play the game like John the Baptist was, 
but you can be a significant role player who helps the team to win. So what else does the angel say John is going to do? It says, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is a part of, of John's life that's a bit unique uh, and uh, something that uh, is, is his unique place in history, and we can't uh, follow it exactly. He is going to be the one who is the forerunner for Jesus. So he comes out and his ministry starts a couple of years before Jesus' ministry starts, and he creates a revival. And this revival that John creates is part of the reason why these huge crowds of people are following Jesus. When we read the stories of Jesus, right, he's got, he's got thousands of people who are following him around in the desert. Why are so many people interested? Because John has prepared the way. He has brought many of them back to God, and so they recognize, hey, now we have another prophet from God, and we need to follow him. But while historically speaking, John had a unique place and none of us are really going to have the spirit and power of Elijah like John did. Um, but we do have uh, a way that we can imitate John and learn more about what God considers a life spent pursuing greatness in his sight. It says that John's going to turn the hearts of parents to their children. And that phrasing is a little, uh, a little difficult for us to, to, not super clear, but what the Bible is referring to here is a restoration of families, right? We know that all families have some problems, some families have a lot of problems, and there are, frequently there are conflicts in families. And, and the Bible is saying here that John is going to bring those families back together. That's part of what he's going to accomplish is to restore relationships within families. And when we help one another to have good families, we are doing similar work. So how do we do that? Well, we have to get involved in each other's lives, right? You can't really do that unless you know each other and you are involved in each other's lives, not as meddlers who come in and tell everybody what to do, but as friends and as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we offer help, and we offer wise counsel, and we offer companionship, and we talk about things together, and we sympathize, and we console each other, and we get into journey groups where we can help each other to have better marriages, and we teach each other's kids in Sunday school, and we pray for each other. And in all those ways and more, we can be like John, and we can turn the hearts of parents toward their children. We can restore family relationships. John will also turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And that's a companion statement to the restoration of families. The family restoration, that represents John's ministry to restore people's relationships with one another. And Turning the disobedient toward wisdom represents uh, people's relationships with God. So John's ministry has both what we might call a horizontal aspect to it of helping people with their relationships with one another, and also a vertical aspect of helping people with their relationships to God. 
And the work of Christians in the church should also have both of those dimensions, right? That's the kind of life that is great in the eyes of God. And then the last part of that statement is that John will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The implication of this whole thing is that uh, once John has done his preparation, the Lord will come to his people. John is preparing the way. So God is going to come. And of course, we know that's what happened. Um, After John uh, came Jesus, and he came to save his people. God did not forget his people and leave us in a hopeless state of sin. He sent the Savior to pay the price for our sins so that we can live forever in paradise with him. So, fear not. You, uh, are you afraid of death and what comes after? Are you afraid that you will not be good enough to pass the final judgment? Fear not, because the Bible is saying uh, that, that John is here as the forerunner of the Messiah who will soon follow. And we need not fear because we can trust that God has provided a way of salvation. When Zechariah hears all this about his son, who is to be born, here's his response in verse 18. So Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So Zechariah shows a little wisdom there, right? He says, I'm an old man, and my wife, uh, she's well along in years. She's not an old woman. No, no, no. But... um, Anyway, aside from that little bit of wisdom there, um, this might seem like a natural question for Zechariah to ask the angel. Um, You're telling me something that seems uh, impossible, so how can I know that this is really true? But the angel is not impressed with that response. It says in verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. So Zechariah may be blameless and righteous in the sight of God and all that, but as we mentioned earlier, that does not mean that he never makes a mistake or never does anything wrong. Um, and for his, uh, for his doubts here, his punishment is that he will be unable to speak for more than nine months. Um, and before we think that Zechariah was, was pretty weak on faith for not believing the word of an angel, I mean, here's an angel appears to him and says something, um, and, and Zechariah has his doubts. Um, and if we think, you know, I would do, I would do way better if I was in, in Zechariah's shoes. Um, Don't forget that we have the infallible Word of God right here in writing for us to read and study, and sometimes we don't believe it. Um, Sometimes it says something that seems impossible to us, like what the angel is saying to Zechariah here, yeah, yeah, you're old, but you're going to have a son. Can't happen. Or, Or sometimes... The Bible says something that just doesn't seem right to us. Like recently when we were studying in in Joshua, and the Israelite army goes and kills every living thing in Jericho. 
And there are times when we read a message from God like that, and we doubt it. We, we question. But God does not say to Zechariah now, okay, fine, Zechariah, you doubt the, the message that I'm bringing? Forget the whole thing. If you're not going to have faith, then, then no, I'm not going to use you. You're not going to have a son. No, God uh, still gives Zechariah the things that he has promised. But there are consequences to his lack of belief. And there are consequences for us, too, if we doubt the Word of God. Now back to the story here, verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Must have been a pretty dramatic moment there. Um, remember, it said at the beginning, all the assembled worshipers were outside praying as he goes in to light the incense. And uh, then they, you know, they can probably smell the incense and that has been lit or stuff, but he's not coming back out. And they wait and they wait and he's taking a long time. And eventually he does come out and he's just like moving his mouth and trying to do hand gestures and he can't talk. And uh, the people finally figure out, oh, man, he must have seen a vision in there, and God must have spoken to him. And now, finally, Elizabeth comes uh, more into the story here at the end. Uh, In verse 23, it says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And after this, the story leaves Zechariah and Elizabeth for a while, and Gabriel goes and makes another appearance to Mary, and Pastor Mike is going to give us that story next week. And then Elizabeth and Mary, and they're they're some kind of relatives, uh, they get together and they have this really profound encounter with the two pregnant women meeting up. And, uh, and carrying the two babies who will be the two greatest people to ever live. And so, what have we learned from this first story of an angel appearing at this first Christmas? Well, first we saw that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people and blameless in God's sight. And we, we took from that the encouragement that it is possible for us to live lives that are characterized by righteousness and victory over sin and living a life that is pleasing to God. We will not be sinless and perfect. Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't. But if we live according to God's ways and we deal with our sins when we commit them in the ways that God has laid out for us, we can live lives that put a smile on God's face. And then second, we saw that the angel statement, do not be afraid, related to multiple fears. And we didn't really even get into all the things that are in the passage, that the the fears that that are being uh, allayed by this angel. But um, we need not fear a useless life. 
right? Because we can learn from John about the kind of things that we can dedicate our lives to that uh, will make us great in the eyes of God. And we learned that we don't need to fear being abandoned by God in our hopeless and sinful state because He has provided a way of salvation. He has provided a Messiah to save us. So do not be afraid. Life can be good. It can be characterized by righteousness and faith and meaningful work for God. And all of that is part of the message of Christmas as first announced uh, by Gabriel to Zechariah. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great example of uh, this godly couple and and of John and the message that uh, Gabriel brought to them. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to follow their example. May we find that encouragement and inspiration from these stories to live lives that really are pleasing to you. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.